are a few things as beautiful in the experience of the redeemed than the corporate voice extolling our corporate Savior. What joy there is to hear you sing praise to our King. What a glimpse of heaven that will be when we, though seeing him by faith, one day see him by sight. Let's look upon him in John 11. Take your Bibles and turn there with me. John chapter 11. We'll start reading in verse 45 as we finish out this chapter, finish down through verse 57. To get your bearings, this chapter has been all about the resurrection of Lazarus from the tomb by the powerful word of Christ. Lazarus, come out. Now we come to the end and the reaction to that miracle and especially the unbelieving reaction to that miracle. John 11 says this, Many of of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation." But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with the disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not Come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we believe that these are your words. We do not need through the presentation of these words to imbue them with power, to make them have authority by parading them in front of the church. These words have your power and authority vested in them by you. You have spoken. Now make us, your sheep, hear your voice. Give us ears that not just hear the words, but grasp the spiritual truths that shape our faith and instruct our steps in this world. Father, we pray that you would speak to us in a unique way in the minutes ahead, building your church and feeding your sheep to the glory of your name. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know about you, but I grew up as an avid sports fan. Some might call it borderline idolatry, but we loved sports in our home. I especially loved following sports, and I grew up in a bit of a golden era of professional sports, particularly if you were a Minnesota fan. So the late 80s, early 90s, the Minnesota Twins had won the World Series within a four-year span. The Vikings were perpetually in the playoffs, and on the verge of greatness that still awaits them. And we had a new NBA team that wasn't very good, but it was fun to watch. And 
there was a lot of fun things to watch in the NBA. One in particular was Michael Jordan dominating the scene and winning championship after championship. But in 1994, Michael Jordan decided to take a hiatus from basketball and go choose or go pursue his profession of baseball. And so in the NBA Finals that year in 1994, there were two teams that maybe wouldn't have been there if Jordan was playing, but they were there, the New York Knicks and the Houston Rockets. And it was billed as a meeting of the great centers, Akeem Olajuwon against Patrick Ewing. And as they were playing the NBA Finals in the middle of Game 5, the broadcast, and I remember this, was interrupted by an NBC News anchor by the name of Tom Brokaw entering into the NBA Finals with a breaking story. And that breaking story involved a police chase in L.A. County of a superstar, a a sports superstar from another sport and from another era. His name was O.J. Simpson, and he was being driven in a white Ford Bronco that his friend owned, and they were leading police on not a high-speed chase, but a low-speed chase through the freeways of L.A. County. I remember O.J. Simpson as growing up watching his highlight reels from college and football. He was a pro, uh, the pro league. He was a prolific running back broke many records and was just a fantastic athlete. He would also be a color analyst on many of the NFL games that I would watch on Sunday afternoons. I was very familiar with O.J. Simpson, but here he was in 1994 with his life in shambles running from the police. If you remember at all, if you were old enough to remember at all, what happened next, the, the ensuing months were a total media circus as they live broadcast the trial of O.J. Simpson for the killing of his former wife and her then boyfriend. And as the evidence got presented, it was just overwhelmingly uh, indicting to O.J. Simpson. It was hard to see how this man did not commit this crime. Well, having the money he had and the prestige he had, he brought together a dream team of lawyers And these uh, lawyers were the best of the best, the most renowned of the renowned. And they came together and all they had to do was show just cause of doubt that this was not OJ's crime. Even with that dream team, as the media continued to push out what was going on in the trial, it seemed obvious to everyone that OJ was guilty. The glove, the blood splatter, the DNA evidence, it was just overwhelming. This man was there and he did the crime. But then the day came finally when the verdict was in. And you remember, do you not, it was not guilty. It was an astonishing turn of events that didn't seem to be an accurate conclusion of the evidence that had been presented in trial. Well, very much like that, in John 11, we see a similar scenario. The evidence in John 11 has been undeniable. There is absolutely no way around the miraculous resurrection of Lazarus. It's a slam dunk case. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of reliable witnesses who are all saying the same thing. We know Lazarus died. We were there when they moved the stone. We smelled the stench. We still have it in our nostrils. We can recall it at a moment's notice. It was awful. He was dead. And then Jesus showed up. And he spoke, Lazarus, come out. And this man resurrected from the grave in his grave clothes, but fully alive. Go talk to him yourself. He lives in Bethany. Validate the story. 
The evidence was slam dunk. The case seemed obvious, and yet we see in our text that evidence demanding a verdict brings a verdict that is shockingly wrong. How could they have missed it so badly? And this, I think, is in large part why Jesus performed this miracle just weeks before he intended to lay down his life for his sheep. He gave one last obvious, incontrovertible, undeniable proof and evidence that he was who he said he was. He did that to provoke true and real faith, both in those who were there and in the generations to come. But he also did it to expose and make obvious unbelief in the human heart. In fact, you could say this has been the theme of the Gospel of John, hasn't it? In John 20, he'll tell us that that's the reason why he wrote the gospel, why he went to the work to put this on paper, the life of Jesus. It wasn't just to give you facts about the Son of Man. It was to compel you to believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. And along the way to do that, he has not just told you what Jesus has done and said, he has shown you how people respond to Jesus. He has shown you the nature of true faith, and the nature of false faith, unbelief. Again, we have before us one of the clearest evidences in the Gospel of John of unbelief. Unbelief. Before we jump into that, I want you to notice that there's this strange change in the narrative. There's a strange absence in the narrative. Going from verse 44 to verse 45, there's, there's a lot left unanswered. Verse 44, Lazarus is come out of the tomb, and Jesus says, unbind him and let him go. Verse 45, we read that many believed, but still others didn't and went and told the Pharisees. You know what's missing there? How did Mary, Martha, and Lazarus respond to the raising of Lazarus? What did Lazarus have to say about four days in the tomb? Notice he doesn't go on a book tour and title it Four Days in Heaven. He just kind of bleeds into the background and you hardly notice that Lazarus is there because Lazarus is not the focal point of the narrative. Christ Jesus our Lord is the focal point of the narrative. The curtain of Revelation is drawn on Lazarus, Martha, and Mary after his resurrection. And that is an astonishing thing because in chapter 11, you got to see the depths of their sorrow. But now, in the heights of their joy, the narrative moves on. As J.C. Ryle has so aptly said, apparently affliction is a more profitable study than rejoicing. Affliction is a more profitable study than rejoicing. In verse 45, the camera now pans out to the larger crowd, and Martha, Mary, and Lazarus fade into the background, and the plot follows the, the path of the fallout that's caused by this resurrection of Lazarus. So what do the unbelievers do when there is evidence that they, they simply cannot deny and get past? How does that evidence impact the political powers of the day, both Jesus' day and our day? How does that unbelief pan out into the purposes and plans of God? All of those questions are answered in this text as our Lord is exalted before us. In the face of unbelief, of the crowd, we see the wisdom and the courage and really the sovereign control of our Lord as he readies himself to give his life as a ransom.
for many. Let's look to Jesus and marvel at him over the next few minutes. Let's start with the exposure of unbelief in verses 45 and 46, the exposure of unbelief. We're told that many who believed in Jesus believed in him because of the miracle that they had just witnessed. I think these are the seeds of of real and true faith that are going to sprout in the book of Acts. In a few weeks in the gospel narrative, there will be no one who stands with Jesus while he suffers and dies on a cross. They will all abandon him. A few women will stand near him and his beloved apostle John will be around in the area, but most will scatter. It will be a dark moment in their faith journey. But his resurrection will call them back to belief in Christ and this will spring forward into the ascension of Jesus and then ultimately the day of Pentecost where Peter will stand in Jerusalem to Jews who saw the dead Lazarus raised and will say to them, based on the many signs and miracles of the work of Jesus, you must repent and believe in him as your Messiah. Don't you think the seeds of faith in John 11 sprout in Acts 2? Don't you think the first wave of believers in the book of Acts are are first found here in John 11? Don't you think many of their testimonies began with, you know, I was wondering about Jesus and then I heard about Lazarus. And then I met Lazarus. And then I talked to Lazarus. And then I saw Jesus suffer, die, and raised back to life. And now I believe in him alone. You see, the pump of belief is being primed here by our Lord's undeniable sign in John 11. But those many who believed are not the focus of the text, are they? John moves from from the many who believe to the the few, the minority who turn away from the sign, hardened in their unbelief. As it has often been said, the same sun that melts wax hardens clay. That's what we see happening in this text. These unbelievers' hearts were not watered with the grace of God. The soil of their heart was hardened in their unbelief. And so the the bright display of Jesus' glory shining on them hardens them further. So they, not being able to deny the facts of what happened, now respond in resolute unbelief. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. This is what happens at Golgotha, you remember? When Jesus is on the cross between two sinners, two thieves who deserve death, he who does not in the middle cross of those two, one, they, they, all, they both see the same things. They hear the same things. They receive the same testimony about this Jesus who's dying between them. One believes and one is hardened in unbelief and dies mocking Jesus of Nazareth. Same thing we find in this text. This reaction shows us that miracles do not guarantee faith. That great displays of power cannot change man's heart and convert men's souls. These unbelievers have seen what Jesus has done and they run to the Pharisees to report all they have seen because they're hardened in unbelief. These unbelievers had seen enough to know that Jesus was diametrically opposed to the Pharisees and the Pharisees were, were their people. The Pharisees were their religious leaders. They were their, if you will allow me, their pastors as it were. These were the boots on the ground guys with the common man. And so when they see Jesus do something that they don't know how to figure out in their unbelief, they run and talk to their helpers in spirituality, their Pharisees. Well, what were the Pharisees, what was their take on Jesus? They had already said clearly what they thought of Jesus. They had said Jesus is of his father, the devil. And the works he does are from the pit of hell. 
And so they're going to take this same work, this undeniable work of raising Lazarus, and they're going to say, this is the power of Satan at work. So here before us is the most astounding and breathtaking miracle to date. And even it does not convince them that their assumptions are wrong. Do you remember in Luke 16, Jesus is telling the story of, whether it's a parable or not, we don't know, but he's telling the story of Lazarus, a a poor beggar, a different Lazarus than John 11. And he often fed at the table of a rich man. And Jesus is telling the story how they both died and, and Lazarus went to Abraham's side, to paradise. And the rich man went to Hades to torment, to hell. And there was a great chasm between them, but apparently they could talk, at least in the story, they could see each other and talk. And as they do, the the rich man asks for a drop of water, and no, I can't send Lazarus. There's a a great chasm, he can't cross it. So the rich man's last request to Abraham, do you remember, is to send Lazarus, the poor beggar, back from the dead to tell his story and to preach the truth of the gospel because there's five brothers he has who will end up in the same place that he is in and he doesn't want anyone to experience the torment he is experiencing. You remember what Moses says from the mouth of, excuse me, Abraham says from the mouth of Jesus. I'll get it right. You know what he says? If they will not believe Moses and the prophets, neither will they believe if one returns from the dead and tells them the truth. Is there a more obvious illustration of that truth in all of scripture than this one? Here we have a different Lazarus who has come back from the dead, who is flesh and blood living in front of them, standing, breathing, talking, testifying, and they refuse to believe. This is part of the logic of Jesus' miracle in chapter 11. He's forcing the issue. Friend, you must know you can't ride the fence with Jesus. The evidence is, is too overwhelming. You can't profess a a faith in him that has warm thoughts about Jesus but still holds on to your own religious system of believing somehow you save yourself or you and Jesus together work this out. There's an all or nothing to Jesus. There's a his side or the other to Jesus. Either Jesus was the real and true Messiah or he was not. And this most indisputable raising of Lazarus drives home the point. He is saying to the crowd, choose your side. Choose this day whom you will believe. Then that moves to the anxiety of unbelief in verses 47 to 48. Unbelief clearly exposed now shows its anxiety. This is always true of unbelief, by the way. Unbelief is always the producer of of anxiety. When you deny obvious truth and choose to live by lies, your world becomes full of anxious fear. As seen in this text, anxiety is rooted in a desire to control the narrative and work out their own desired outcomes that were contrary to what was obviously true. Friends, people play this game all day, every day. You and I are prone to this game. We want to manipulate our life narrative for our own desired outcomes. We want to be the the controllers and captains of our own fate, moving ourselves along to our own desired ends. While giving lip service to our sovereign God, we, we want to have happen what we want to have happen. And if we start losing control on that, if something obviously true threatens that, we often double down in our 
desire for control, and that produces anxiety in us, fear in us. This can be true even in the believer's heart. So I encourage you to work your way backwards from anxiety and from fear. When you see that weed crop up in your heart, work yourself down to its root and see where it is that that anxiety is caused. What part of of your life are you seeking control after that God is saying no to? And that you're still grabbing for and manipulating and trying to work out all the details. That's exactly what we see happening with the Pharisees and the chief priests in this text. Unable to deny what Jesus has done, unable to deny his great signs, but they can't, by some act of submissive faith, give up their power either. They're unwilling to submit to Jesus in true faith. And so, rather than seek out the truth of the matter, rather than try to find what really is going on here, they reject the facts and go further in the pit of unbelief. And this produces anxiety in their heart. What's their fear? Their fear is that Jesus is going to start a political uprising, isn't it? That he's going to be this this Messiah figure who's going to stir the nation of Israel up against Rome. And unlike other Messianic figures who have come on and off the scene over the last millennia for the Jews, he's going to succeed because he can do great signs. Notice, contrary to liberal Christianity progressive Christianity as it calls itself now, there's no question in the Pharisees' mind that Jesus did the signs. They didn't have to to bring together a, a committee to wrestle through the works of Jesus, the works and words of Jesus. They didn't have to call themselves the Jesus Seminar and and vote with beads, red or blue or black, whether or not they thought Jesus did it or maybe did it or didn't do it. Well, the Pharisees who are there on the scene who who had first-hand eyewitness accounts to what was happening, just accepted that this happened. That Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. That he was doing many signs. The question is not, how do we disprove that he did the sign? The question is, how do we keep him from destroying our grip on power? How do we keep him from ruining our place and our nation? The depth of their anxiety is best understood when you know who they are, the Pharisees and the chief priests. You know these things, but let me remind you of them. The Pharisees were the experts of Old Testament law in first century Jewish life. So if you had a law question, you found the Pharisee. You found the scribe from your local synagogue. The synagogues were the local uh, gathering places for the Jews in their small towns. If you had a law question, you would go to to your Pharisee, to your scribe, whom you knew, knew the law. They were experts of the law. They were common men. They were leaders of the common man. They were the middle class type of guys. Young Jewish boys grew up saying, I want to be a Pharisee. I know you've read the Gospels and you're like, how is that possible? I mean, Jesus says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, seven times in Matthew 23. How, how in the world can a young boy look up to the Pharisees? Well, that's who they knew to be their spiritual leader and authority. The, these were the men who loved the word of God and were serious about keeping the word of God. So that's why in our text, when the unbelieving Jews leave the scene of Lazarus, where do they go? They go talk to their guys, to their spiritual leaders, to their Pharisees. They have the ear of guys on the ground and they say, listen, here's what's happening, what do we do? 
The Pharisees were also strong nationalists, and by that I mean they loved the nation Israel. They believed the nation of Israel was blessed by God as it is, and that it was meant to be an independent nation. They chafed under the rule and oversight of Rome. They were always looking for a way out. They were excited about potential and possibility of a coming, returning Messiah to get them out from under Roman rule. Those are the Pharisees. The chief priests now, the other side of this equation. So the Pharisees called together the chief priests in this verse, and they go and call the council. So who are the chief priests? Well, the chief priests are those who descended from Levi. They're from the tribe of Levi. They come into their position of power mostly by heredity and appointment, by who your dad is and by who you know. That's how they got to their positions of power. And their main realm of authority was the temple in Jerusalem. They mostly lived in and around Jerusalem, and the center of Jewish worship was the center of their authority over God's people. These chief priests particularly were funded by the temple economy, meaning that when people came to worship, they would exchange money from traveling so that they could have temple currency, or they would buy an animal so they wouldn't have had to travel with one, and buy an animal for sacrifice, and In this temple system of economy, through exorbitant prices, the chief priests became the fat cats of Jewish society. They became the rich and the famous. They hold the the purse strings of worship and its economy, but they also hold the authority over how we do worship. They can keep you from coming to worship in the temple. They can deem you unclean and keep you out of the joy of the celebration and worship of God in the temple. They oversaw things like the selling of animals in the temple courtyards and the exchanging of money, which you remember Jesus overturned in John 2 and will do again in his Passion Week to incite their hatred and steal their resolve to put him to death. From the chief priest, the the Romans would select a high priest. They understood that if you want to control a nation, you have to control its laws and its governance of those laws, but also its worship. And so the Romans governed the Jews' worship by selecting their own high priest. As they selected their own high priest, then the chief priest would function under the high priest as political operatives. Do you get a sense of the system here? They're in cahoots with Rome. They're holding hands with Rome operating a system that is supposed to be worshiping Jehovah God but is actually lining their pockets. They're politically motivated and adept at the game. They use their cunning craftiness and shrewdness of business skill and political acumen to secure their power and guarantee their ongoing position. They viewed Rome as a political ally to be used for their own ends, not as an enemy to be overthrown. So you have these two ruling parties, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and in God's providence, they are joined together in an overarching body known as the Sanhedrin. I know I'm boring you with history and detail, but it's important to understand the evil of their unbelief. The Sanhedrin were a collection of these men, Sadducees and Pharisees, chief priests and the common pastor friend of the normal Jew. Seventy men together, the high priest over them, so 71 total. They would settle and decide the most difficult issues in the ruling over Jerusalem and over Israel. They took political administration of Israel to the lengths it needed to be in the uh, jurisdiction of Jerusalem. 
And all of it was done under Rome. They had a lot of power. Now we know later in the narrative, they, they don't have power to take a life. They don't have power to say, this guy deserves death and to, and to execute him. So Rome held some of the strings still, but they were very powerful. And here you have together in this ruling body people of such different theological positions. We could say more, but the Sadducees only hold to the first five books of the Old Testament. The Pharisees hold to all 39. The Sadducees don't believe in a resurrection. The Pharisees do, which kind of pokes them in the eye when Lazarus comes walking out of the tomb, but that's a whole other deal. The Sadducees, I mean. There's a whole bunch of theological, political views that are different, but they're joined together in this one body. And so when the common Jew who doesn't believe in Christ, in verse 45, walks away from the raising of Lazarus, he goes to the Pharisee. The Pharisee goes to the chief priest. The chief priest says, yeah, this is big enough to bring the whole council together. So they gather as the Sanhedrin under the leadership of the high priest, and their words are quite telling, aren't they? Look at what they say about Jesus. Again, they don't reject the miraculous sign. Rather, they fear the reaction to those signs. They fear that the Jews will be stirred in zealous fervor against Rome, and Rome will come and do what Rome does. You know what that is? When there's a political uprising, they come and they squash it. And you know how they squash it? They kill a lot of people, they destroy the capital, and they especially tear down the center of worship. And then they take the people who were part of the political uprising and they spread them out in the rest of their empire. Because they say, you know what, enough of this, we're not doing this again. They reinforce the peace of Rome through the heavy hand of Rome to make sure that everyone finds their way underneath their power. Well, friend, what happens if that happens? If the Romans come and they're stirred by Jesus to to come and put out an uprising, who loses power? The Sadducees and the Pharisees will lose our place, which I think means the temple, and our nation. We'll lose our power and our influence. Notice the anxiety of unbelief is not what is true and how do I figure out what is true. Friend, maybe you're among us today and you're a seeker. You don't know for sure what the gospel is. You're you're still not sure you're in Christ by grace through faith. You don't yet have peace with God. You're still very aware that you have a, a sin problem and you don't know how to fix it. And you're wondering through the gospel and you feel like you're, you're just continuing on in, in confusion and lack of clarity. Can I just tell you, if, if your questions are, how can I have part of Christ and continue on in my sinful rebellion, that's the anxiety of unbelief. That's what we see in John 11. But rather, if your question is, how can I know the truth? Then be assured, the grace of God is watering the soil of your soul, preparing you to receive the seed of the gospel that will enter into fertile soil and produce fruit of faith. Keep pursuing and seeking after Christ. The anxiety of unbelief we see in this text, however, is how do I deal with undeniable facts while keeping my lifestyle of sin untouched? Isn't that the issue of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? How, how do we keep our life, sinful lifestyle going without admitting to the facts? Then I want you to see the evil of unbelief. This anxiety bubbles up into the evil of unbelief in verses 49 and 50. If there were a musical score to this text, I think it would 
have been kind of dark up to this point, and then as you enter into verse 49 and Caiaphas enters the scene, the pace would pick up and the, the volume would pick up and the dark tones would pick up as the chief antagonist comes on the scene. This is the guy who's going to settle the issue and solve the dilemma of their unbelief. In the midst of all of their sinful, evil, wicked rejection of Jesus, one man rises to the top. His name is Caiaphas. And in his unbelief, he hatches an evil plan. Can I just say to you that the scriptures are clear this is how it always works? Unbelief always goes here. Unbelief always leads you to wicked, evil, despicable acts which show your rejection of the truth. This is Romans 1, correct? Where we're told that the wrath of God has come against mankind and then we're given the logic of God in Romans 1, 18-32 of why that is true. And that is true because God has made plain through revelation what is true about him and about us. But what has mankind done? Mankind has rejected what is true. What is obviously true, we have suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so we, having given God up, he gives us over to our unbelief and our passions of our flesh. And what does that produce in Romans 1? All kinds of wicked actions that are contrary to obvious revelation. And you know the example Paul uses in that text is men being with men and women being with women in an unnatural way. An obvious display of heart unbelief and rejection coming out in behavior. This is what unbelief always sprouts into. This is the flower of unbelief in the life of the unbeliever. This is Caiaphas. He cannot deny what is clear and obvious, but he can seek to get rid of the evidence. Instead of falling on his face before the God-man, he's hardened in unbelief and he connives a plan to get rid of Jesus, to put him to death. And there's been no more evil act in human history than that one. To kill the Son of God. Did you notice as I read his arrogance in the text? While they're fretting in their anxiety of unbelief, he, is, he has such steely wickedness in his unbelief that he enters in with arrogance. And he's like, you, you don't even know what you're talking about. You guys are, are political newbies. Let the old trickster teach you a few tricks on how to get through this. Let me, in all of my wisdom, worldly wisdom, teach you the way around this. Interestingly enough, in verse 50, he uses accounting terms to, to speak of their understanding. He's saying, you, you don't know how to calculate this right. And then he uses another calculating term when he says, this will be better for you. This will be more profitable for you. His evil heart of unbelief is thinking in terms of, of personal profit as he accounts the situation, appraises the situation, and finds a deal to be made to get through it. This political powerhouse of Caiaphas has now entered the conversation and he says, ah, don't worry, I've got it figured out. I have the perfect plan. Drops his political wisdom like a bombshell into the conversation. Says, don't worry, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to perish. Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish scholar of the 1800s, tells us that this was a, 
an adage that Jewish people knew well. That they would say often, it's better that one man should die than the community perish. Caiaphas here as the high priest is simply taking that and applying it to Jesus and he's steering the ship of the council into the harbor of political expediency. Sound familiar? He's taking the logic of human reasoning and going after what would be most beneficial to the majority. Justifying that which is unjust and immoral to the one because it is better for the whole. Friend, it is, it is never morally right to sacrifice what is true on the altar of what is politically helpful. That's exactly what we see happening in John 11. This decision by Caiaphas is, is simply beneficial, though morally corrupt. And he uses that to justify his decision. This is so much of, of politics in our world, and not just our world, but every generation of mankind from then till now. To think that I can, I can choose what is morally wrong because it's politically helpful. That I can make one person suffer so that the rest can be helped, at least my version of helped. This is the logic of unbelief that we see. This is the evil of unbelief we see at play in current culture. In the political scene of, of the United States of America, this is happening over and over again on the local level, the state level, and the national level. Where politicians who have rejected obvious, revealed truth, who are living in the light of lies, the darkness of lies, I should say, are taking expedient decisions and justifying them because it helps more people than it hurts. Even though the people it hurts is morally wrong, and they'll be held morally accountable. So to be more clear, is this not the argument of abortion? Of the pro-choice movement? The pro-murderers movement? Isn't this what they say? That it's better for women to have health care choice of their own body than it is for us to, to say, no, this is actually what it is. A baby, a child, a human life inside a womb. And that life is valuable whether inside or outside of the womb. Therefore, we ought to protect that life inside the womb instead of making politically expedient decisions, which our culture now celebrates and rejoices in, still mostly, it seems, so that we can keep our office, we can let abortion go, even though it's morally wrong and horribly wicked before the God of heaven, we can make it justifiable because it's expedient. Isn't this the same thing at play in the LGBTQ issues that are at play in our culture? This is how evil works, the evil of unbelief. Caiaphas is exhibit A in this text, uniquely poised to express that evil. Uniquely poised because he's the ruler of the rulers, but he's also uniquely poised because he's really good at his job. We pick that up from the other parts of the Gospels, we can read how he is so adept in the political maneuvering as Jesus is brought on trial. But there's more than that. It's also in our text, but it's also in history. Caiaphas has, has done the amazing thing of staying in office for what will end up being 18 years. From AD 16, excuse me, AD 18 to AD 36. To show you how astonishing this is, when 
the Aaronic priesthood was first established all the way through to the rise of Herod and the appointment of Herod in Judea, which is about 2,000 years almost, there was a total of 46 high priests. They had all been sons of Aaron, descendants of Aaron, and they were appointed to a lifetime appointment. You're high priest until you die. That was Old Testament law according to Scripture. But when Herod ascended the throne in the last hundred years leading up to the time of Christ, between Herod's ascension and the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, there were 28 high priests. So 2,000 years, 46. In less than 100 years, 28. The position became a political football of Roman rule. As long as he did what the Romans wanted him to do, his office was safe. As long as he played the political game well, he could maintain his power. But as soon as he crossed the wrong person, said the wrong thing, made the wrong decision, he was yanked and replaced with another. So it tells you something that Caiaphas is working on 18 years in office. Most guys lasted one to two. It is an astonishing accomplishment of a political professional. And this is the evil of unbelief. This rejection of truth does not stay in the heart, but blossoms into wicked plans to put Jesus to death. He demands that they decide with him that Jesus must die so that the nation can be saved. But all this evil, you must know, is not wasted. And that is a super weird statement to make. Is it not? All this evil is not wasted. You know enough of your Bible to understand what I mean, but let me help you understand it more. God is so sovereignly good that even when man does his most wicked expression of unbelief, it ultimately serves the purposes of God. This is his usefulness of evil. We see it in verses 51 and 52. It's the staggering editorial comment that John makes about Caiaphas. He tells us that the sitting high priest has spoken a word of prophecy even in the state of his arrogant unbelief. So what Caiaphas meant for evil, God meant for good. What Caiaphas meant for a, a politically expedient move, God intends to use to bring about his foreordained plan, the sacrifice of his own son. Caiaphas obviously had no sense of the filling of the Holy Spirit as though he were speaking for the Lord. We simply know that he was speaking for the Lord because the Lord tells us he was speaking for him, making clear that what Caiaphas said was more than what Caiaphas understood, that God was doing a greater work than Caiaphas himself could even prophesy. Notice how the the promise is expanded in verse 52. How this promise is, is given gloriously more by the Holy Spirit than what Caiaphas even said. The scope of the atonement has moved past the, the nation of Israel. It's moved to all of those that are going to be gathered under the banner of the cross. And then notice how the statement clarifies the purpose. So it, it expands the, the scope of the work of Christ. But it also clarifies the purpose of the work of Christ. That this purpose for Jesus dying for the nation and for all those scattered is to bring them together as one under God as his children. So friends, you know the gospel, but the gospel is so that you would not have to die because of your sin. Christ died under your sin. And this death accomplishes your forgiveness and your welcoming into God's family to be gathered as one in Christ. Sin that separates us from God 
is put to death by Christ who unites us to God. And all of this is a product of God's sovereign use of unbelief. Caiaphas condemns Jesus to die here, but this serves God's plan to make atonement for your sin through his son. He uses evil for his purpose. Then lastly, the resolve of unbelief. Verse 53, we see this unbelief blossom into a consolidated reserve. Excuse me, a consolidated resolve. They're committed more than ever to do their evil deed. The council heard that devious plan of Caiaphas and that hardened them into a steely resolve. They saw his political genius and they said, yeah, absolutely, we're on board. He must die for us. This was the verdict of the council that day. They were convinced by Caiaphas and they intended to carry out their plan. They would not be confused with the facts. They would not be swayed by persuasive argument. They would not call in witnesses to turn their opinion. The man on trial never appeared in court, but the case was closed. The verdict was in. Jesus must die for the nation. He must be arrested not to be put on trial, but to be taken to his execution stake. This is the resolve of the unbelieving heart. No matter what it takes, truth must be denied and resisted and ultimately silenced. This is the only way unbelief can presumably win in the war of truth in the culture. Not able to succeed in the realm of observable facts, nor in the realm of revealed truth, it must overthrow, overpower, and overcome its opponent by sheer violence, by domination, by expressions of power. So as our society gives itself over more and more to believing lies rather than that which is obviously true, revealed by God, know that they will grow more and more resolved to get rid of those who stand in their way. As they hated Jesus, so they will also hate the followers of Jesus who as salt and light stand for the truth of Jesus. And unable to overcome our arguments for truth, and we should make the arguments. We should have a logical and reasonable faith. We should be able to prove from the scriptures why we believe what we believe. We should speak to the culture that which is right according to the revelation of God. But just know when we will not bow down to their idols of of unbelief, they will throw us in the fiery furnace like Nebuchadnezzar. They must destroy those who hold to the truth. This is how unbelief builds and culminates. But you must see then how Jesus responds in verse 54. This resolve of unbelief gives Jesus his own resolve. What he does in verse 54 is not just a a coy move, a wise move, a shrewd move. It's also a theological statement. He's not just getting out of their harm's reach. He is doing that. But he's making clear that no man's decision will put him on a cross. No court's ruling will determine his fate. He, as he said in John 10, as the good shepherd, is able, powerful, has authority to lay down his life for his sheep and has authority to take it up again. He will die for the nation and for all of God's sheep scattered abroad, but he will die on his terms, not theirs. He will die when it is his appointed time, not their appointed hour. This then leads to the pretense of unbelief. I faked you out and said we were almost, we were done. We're not, we almost are done. Lastly, verse 55 through 57, the pretense of unbelief. Jesus' final climb 
to Jerusalem is in the context of unbelief all around. We see that pretense in verses 55 through 57 when Jesus is approaching the Passover and the Jewish feast is coming and the Jews come and and gather in Jerusalem. And historians estimate that there would be about a million Jews gathered in and around the city of Jerusalem. And they would all have to be coming to the temple complex, the, the place of authority of the Sadducees, the chief priests. This is their Super Bowl, the chief priests. This is where they shine and thrive. This is where they get FaceTime with the people of God. This is where they exercise their authority and make their big bucks. The people are coming to be ceremonially cleansed so that they can observe the feast according to the Old Testament law laid out for them in the book of Leviticus. All the things that would make them unclean, they now appear, start appearing on the scene a week before the week of Passover to start doing those ritual cleansings, those external rituals so that they can worship publicly. And as they're going through the motions of their religious duty, one question is on their mind. Will Jesus come to the feast? They had heard about him. They had seen Lazarus. They knew the tension of the Pharisees and the Sadducees wanting him dead. They knew there's an arrest warrant out for him. They knew he might come, but who in their right mind would come to this feast? And no man in their right mind would come to Jerusalem in Jesus' position, would they? As we approach the Lord's table, would you be thoughtful about the intentionality of Jesus? If you face the the political climate of Jesus' day as he headed into Passover, knowing there's an arrest warrant out for his arrest, you would not land yourself in the center of the volcano that's about to erupt, knowing that you are the stimulant that will make it go. If you are in your right mind seeking to maintain life, you do not go. But Jesus, as you know, does head to Jerusalem. His face is set like a flint to go and give his life as a ransom for many. And as we'll see next week, he'll enter Jerusalem to the shouts and the acclaim of the crowd who will say, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. These are ceremonially clean Jews, ritually cleansed, with hearts full of unbelief. We know that because on Friday they will be turned by the Pharisees and the Sadducees to demand from Pilate that he release for them Barabbas and put Jesus to death. They will then lead him from Jerusalem to shouts of mockery as he is going to die outside the city. This is the end result of this unbelief in chapter 11. It all happens under the pretense of religious fervor. These many who purify themselves externally will be the same ones who cry out, crucify him, crucify him. Not only them, but also the religious elites who have already determined in verse 55, that, or yeah, 54, that they will kill Jesus are also going about the ritual cleansing, aren't they? getting ready to observe Passover. In fact, they will say to Pilate, on the day of Jesus' execution, we cannot enter your quarters because we we don't want to defile ourselves so that we can observe Passover. You've got to be kidding me. This, friend, is the pretense of unbelief 
These men are whitewashed tombs. Their hearts put off a worse stench than Lazarus's grave. And this is the awful pretense of unbelief, lauded by men as religiously perfect, all while brewing murderous plots in the heart. Friend, maybe this is you. Maybe the word of the Lord has exposed your own unbelieving heart this morning. This truth cannot be rightly denied. You see it obvious. Jesus is the Savior and Messiah. The evidence is overwhelming and obvious. But to this point, you've lived in the anxiety and evil of unbelief. You must know today can be a change for you. It does not have to be that way. You, by God's grace, can turn from your rebellion and sinfulness against the Lord, lay down your weapons of sinful unbelief, and place yourself in faith in Christ as Lord and Savior of your soul. In just a moment, we're going to come gather around this table to remember this Jesus who gave his life for us. This table is for those of us who know this Jesus Believe upon him as our only hope for salvation. This is one of two outward signs that Christ has given to his church to observe until the day of his return. And as we come to the table in light of John 11, I want to press upon your soul two things from this text. The first is that it's easy to come to this table with the pretense of unbelief. The very thing we see in John 11 might be true in in your hearts to go through the external motions of observance, of of religious ritual. That's not what this is, but it's easy to make it about that in our hearts. To have a heart that is far from true and real faith. This is exactly what Paul warned about in 1 Corinthians 11 when he told us to examine ourselves as we come to the table. So this is a checkpoint for you, beloved. For you to evaluate your own heart before the Lord, to to ask yourself where you're at in relationship to Christ your King. He who gave his life for you, had a body broken for you, shed his blood for you. How are you in relationship to him this morning? Where's your obedience at to him compared to the last time we were at this table? Where's your love for him at compared to where you were the last time we met here? May God's kindness be to you overflowing as you evaluate your heart and then bask in the assurance of Christ's work for you. He has accomplished it all. Know his forgiveness and walk in his joy. The second thought as we come to this table is the connection between Caiaphas as the high priest and Jesus as the great high priest. You know, Caiaphas was the last sitting Old Testament high priest. And his prophecy that he said in this text will fulfill the ending of the high priest system. So what he says in this text, that one must die for the nation so that the whole nation doesn't perish, the Bible says that's a prophetic word. It's a prophetic word about Jesus dying, but it's also a prophetic word about the priesthood. Because that Old Testament priesthood was only pointing forward to one person and one event. And that was the giving of himself in sacrifice at Calvary for you and me. So Jesus is the much greater than Caiaphas. He's the great high priest. He gave his body for you. So as you take this bread and you take this cup, remember the work of our great high priest.
giving himself as a ransom for you once for all. As we approach the table, let's take some moments to consider these things privately in prayer, examining our hearts, rejoicing in grace, preparing our hearts to observe the Lord's table. Let's pray together. Mark, if you would pray and thank the Lord for his body broken for us. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to this table to remember what Christ has done for us, we think of the words that uh, you spoke in Isaiah 53, that Jesus was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Jesus accomplished everything on the cross for us. There's nothing that we can do to earn our salvation. And on the cross, Jesus said, it is finished, completely accomplished, it's done, it's paid in full. We give you the praise and honor and glory for that. We know that we can do nothing to earn your favor and earn your salvation, but Christ has done it for us. And Jesus, we praise you and give you all the honor and glory that you deserve. Amen. Amen.